Thank you for joining us online today. If you have a testimony or a prayer request that you would like to share with us, you can text HOTL to 97000. And if you'd like to partner with us financially, you can text the dollar amount to 84321. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you enjoy the message and have a fantastic day. Well, hey, how's everybody doing this morning? Um, you know, just as a, another shameless plug for Impact, um, I, I teach our church history course. And honestly, it's one of the funnest things I do all year. Like, I'll, I'll just let everybody know, if you don't know me, I'm an absolute super nerd. And I have loved, this is not a joke, I have, I'm, I'm one of those freak kids that has loved history since I was in like fifth grade. I used to bore my friends to death with historical facts that nobody cared about but me. And now I get to bore impact students. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. It's good times. All right, hey, this morning uh, we're going to open up our Christmas series called Behold the Glory. Behold the Glory. If you're taking notes today, I'd have you write down, is there room at the end? Is there room at the end? You know, I don't normally say this. Like, I, I, believe, I believe that the word of God can change your life anytime you hear it. Anytime you open the scripture, I believe that God can change your life. But I, this, this message that, that the Lord put on my heart, I believe will change your life if you will grab hold of it. I don't mean that in a... Like, in a simplistic way, I mean that in a very, very real way. If today you will hear the word and apply it to your life, I believe that God will change your entire life. I want you to go with me first. We're going to go to uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. God, I just ask that you would reveal your glory in this house this morning. I pray that you would reveal your glory in this house today. God, I pray that today's word isn't just moral, therapeutic, date, and deism. God, I pray that today's word would reveal the glory of the Father. Lord, I pray that you would empty me out of myself, fill me anew with your Holy Spirit, and help me to communicate what you want to be heard in this place today. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Can I tell you what I don't think we talk about enough in the church? The glory of God. Sometimes church can tend to feel like it's more about you or about us than it's about him. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't hear words about how to, you know, how to apply you know, principles of scripture to your life or anything like that, but I think that what it really comes down to is that there are times where church can feel very transactional. It almost feel like, uh, like a, you know, what have you done for me lately kind of feeling. 
Friend, can I tell you that you have a reason to worship Jesus? And it actually has nothing to do with what he's done for you. It has everything to do with who he is as God and as the person of the Godhead. I think sometimes it could be, that, you know, the reason we don't talk about it maybe as much as we should is because the glory of the Lord is kind of difficult to describe. It's hard to wrap your mind around. See, even the Greek word for it, which is doxa, simply means glory, splendor, or honor. But in an external expression, meaning it's felt by those in proximity to the one with doxa. Maybe I'll try to explain it to you a different way. Have you ever seen someone come into a room, not really knowing who they were, but you knew there was something different about them? <laughs> the, the, my, my Gen Zers in the room might call it aura. There's an aura about him. But there's something about somebody that walks into a room that there's, a lot of times it comes with a title. We ascribe certain levels of honor to certain titles. You know, whether you like the president of the United States or not, when the president walks in, there's a certain level, there's a certain aura that comes in with him because he has a title. But I want to read this once again. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld not his blood, not his sacrifice, not his death. He beheld his glory. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we can't always describe the glory of the Lord, but we know it when we feel it. Probably about the past month and a half, I feel like we've been kind of stepping into a place of the glory of God in a way that we haven't experienced in a while. And part of the reason why I'm preaching this way on Christmas is because I believe that this next year is going to be a year of the glory in this house. The glory is closely attached to his presence, that where he is, his glory manifests. You know, back before, like, the madness of 2020, it was like this Christmas tradition for Christians to fight the war on Christmas. Hey, you guys remember those days? When like the most of the things that Christians complained about was like a Starbucks cup. We're like, oh man, they took all the snowflakes off and they made it red. It's a war on Christmas. <laughs> like now we're like, we're like, we're in this place where like no matter what happens, like there's so much insanity going on that we're like, we don't have time to fight the war on Christmas because we're fighting the war for reason. We were in this like endless battle though to remind our culture that Jesus is the reason for the season. And while that's absolutely true, sometimes what we, what we mean when we say that is we think about what he's done, what he's given, what he accomplished, and all of those things are true. But I wanna remind you, I wanna remind you that Jesus was worthy of celebration, veneration, and worship from the moment that he was born, before the miracles, before the teachings, before Lazarus, before the cross, before the resurrection, he was already worthy of all praise and power and authority and adoration.
Today I want to take a little bit of time and parallel a couple of moments from Scripture. Before I do, though, I want to talk about the Ark of the Covenant for a moment. i got to be really transparent. There is nothing, almost nothing in Scripture more fascinating to me than the Ark. And honestly, it's one of the most fascinating things in culture, too. Like, if you, if you think about it, I won't get into too much detail on what the Ark is, but if you don't know what it is from Scripture, it's effectively a large box. It was masterfully crafted and overlaid with gold. On the lid, there were two golden cherubim, which are angels, facing each other with their hands out, creating what the Bible called the mercy seat, which at that time was the place that the presence of God literally dwelled. The ark also housed the symbols of the promises of God to the Jewish people. It housed the stone that God wrote the Ten Commandments on. It housed a jar of manna to remind them of how he, how he sustained them in the wilderness. And it held the rod of Aaron that confirmed his role as high priest. Now, if you're, if you're not aware of this, during the tabernacle era, the ark was the focal point of worship for the people of God. What's interesting about the ark is that all of a sudden the temple gets built. And just, poof, it's gone. You don't really hear about it again in scripture. It's one of the greatest mysteries of human history. Where did the ark go? If you were to Google right now, where is the ark of the covenant? You'll see no less than like 30 articles from all sorts of charlatans claiming that they found the ark. Oh, I found it down in Ethiopia. Oh, okay. Oh, I found it down in the tunnels, you know, under, under, under the Temple Mount. Oh, okay. You know, you don't really have to go searching for the ark. I can tell you who the ark is. It's Jesus. Now, most of us have probably heard of the ark more from, from like a Hollywood film than we have from the Bible. I remember growing up watching, this is not a joke because I'm such a history guy. My favorite movie growing up was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I will say though, I watched that movie I think for the first time when I was nine-ish. I was not emotionally prepared for like Nazis to get their faces melted. I did not see that coming. I guess it's Nazis, so whatever. <laughs> See, but every story of the ark is actually a story about Christ. The purpose of the ark was to carry the reminder of God's promises and be the resting place for his glory. I want you to take you to 2 Corinthians 1.20. Here's what it says. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm going to take us through a couple of passages of Scripture. One's going to be really familiar, and then through one that's going to be pretty unfamiliar to a lot of people in the room. So first I'm going to go to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Judah or Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The second passage of scripture, and actually I'm going to take you through technically two passages here, is uh, it's about a man named Obed-Edom. I might be the first person who's ever taught about Obed-Edom on Christmas. So here we go. We're going to go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. I'm going to give you just a little bit of backstory here before I read this. Because I'm, well, I'm going to read the first one. It says, David feared the Lord that day. Well, what happened that day? For about 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant had been, oh, I should say, I should run this back. About 21 years previously to this, um, the, the army of Israel fought against its enemies, and they thought that they could bring the Ark of the Covenant with them, and because God was in the camp, God would create victory for them. The problem was, is at the time, the priesthood was so corrupt that God didn't give them his blessing. And so they ended up losing that particular battle, and the Philistines actually stole the Ark of the Covenant. So really, it's a great story, kind of a sermon for another time, but the first thing that they do is they bring it into the house of Dagon, their, their god in Gath. They set it in front of the altar as, as though it was an offering to Dagon. The Bible records that the next morning, when the priests went in, they found that the statue had fallen over on its face in front of the ark. And then they set it back up. And the next morning, they found it fallen over again, except its head and its hands also had broken off. Word to the wise. Stop worshiping things that you have to prop up. So the Philistines kind of played hot potato with the ark for a while. Because what kept happening was everywhere that, 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 this, that this, these heathens and these enemies of God would try to send his presence, people would start getting sick. And so they finally sent it back to Israel. Because they realized, this is not good. We got to get this thing out of here. And it landed at the house of a, of a priest. His name was Abinadab. For 20 years... The Ark of the Covenant stayed in Abinadab's house. On the 20th year, when David was crowned king, he decided that it was time to bring the Ark, the, the, the ark home to Jerusalem. And so without taking counsel from anyone, David goes to the house of Abinadab, takes the Ark, not knowing even how to transport it, not having asked the Levites, how should we do this? And he puts it into a cart, and they cart the presence of God across Israel. At one point, at one point, the oxen slips, and the son of Abinadab, a young man named Uzzah, reached out his hand irreverently to steady the ark, and the Lord killed him. 
This is David's response. David feared the Lord that day. A good day to have feared the Lord would be the day before that. <laughs> and he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. Another translation says Obed-Edom, the Gittite, which simply means of Gath. The ark of the Lord, listen to this, the ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. There's only two places in the scripture where Obed-Edom is mentioned. The first one is here in 2 Samuel. The second one is in 1 Chronicles, chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, and it's David at one point hired musicians and singers and gatekeepers in the house of the Lord and actually names Obed-Edom not only as a Levite but also as a gatekeeper. And it said Obed-Edom also had sons, Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehoshaphat the second, Joah the third, Sekar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Pulathi the eighth, for God blessed him. Most translations actually say God blessed him greatly. As I said, Obed-Edom is only mentioned in Scripture twice. The first one, in 2 Samuel, he's referred to as a Gittite. The second, in 1 Chronicles, he's mentioned as a Levite. So which one is it? Is, it an, is he an enemy of God, or is he a priest of God? Well, he's both. He's a priest of God living in the wrong place. You ever felt like you're the right person, you're just in the wrong place? Like there's nothing necessarily internally wrong. You're just not really where you're supposed to be. You're not quite doing what you think you're supposed to be doing. Imagine knowing that your one inherited goal is to be serving the presence of God but you find yourself living in the tents of your sworn enemy. Indeed, your only inheritance at all amongst the tribes is God himself. It just got me wondering, how do you think he got there? Like, how do, you, how, do you go, how do you go from knowing that your inheritance is to be with God, and yet the first thing that's recorded about you in Scripture is that you're living with God's enemies? How do you find yourself there? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really record why Obed-Edom is in Gath in the first place. It could very well be he just got tired of his job. It also could be maybe he wanted land with his own name on it. You know, if you know anything about the Levites, what you realize is, and this is actually, I'm going I'm to quote here from A.W. Tozer. He says, when the Lord divided Canaan amongst the tribes of Israel, Levi received no land. God said to him simply, I am thy part and thine inheritance. And by those words made him richer than all his brethren, richer than all the kings and rajas who have ever lived in the world. And there is a spiritual principle here, a principle still valid for every priest of the Most High God. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, 
the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, and all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For he now has it all in one and has it purely, legitimately, and forever. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a priest with no God to care for and then God gets dropped off at your house. I, just, I can imagine the surprise on Obed-Edom's face when there's a knock on the door at his dwelling in Gath and he opens it and he sees David there and he says, hey, I need to store this at your house for a while. By the by, it just killed somebody. <laughs> Again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he wasn't the first priest who God showed up at his door. Abinadad had the ark for 20 years. What's really interesting about it No one recorded that God blessed him. He had it for 20 years. And no one was breaking down Abinadab's door to be like, hey, uh, can, I, can I get that ark from you? <laughs> this seems like things are working out really great for you, man. And yet Obed-Edom is recorded that in only three months, God blessed him so greatly, he made King David jealous for the Lord. Three months. The same David... I need you to hear this. This is actually a really important point. I think a lot of times because of the writings and Psalms, we just assume that David was really, really familiar with the presence and power of God. The first time that David came in contact with the power and presence of God, someone died and it scared David so greatly, he sent it back to his enemies. He sent it back to Gath. He's like, I know you guys just had this. Could you take it again? <laughs> I, like, and seriously, guys, sometimes we think of David, and he's like this, the most spiritual guy in the whole Bible, and he can do no wrong, and yet the first time that he actually came face-to-face -face with the presence of God, he treated it so irreverently that someone died. And so he sent it to Obed-Edom. Even though Obed-Edom's story continues, Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, his story ends early because he was so familiar with the presence of God that maybe he doesn't fear or revere or respect God anymore. You know, speculation is not always the best preaching device, but when something is inferred in Scripture through judgment or blessing, it's pretty safe to use it. Perhaps Abinadab had taught his sons to tolerate the presence of God. That's why in 20 years, no one was clamoring to, to house the ark themselves. How many of you love blessing people who tolerate you? When you talk about your friends, you don't talk about the ones that you know just tolerate you. When you think about Christmas gifts outside of your family, you don't give gifts normally to people who just tolerate you.
In a very real way, Obed-Edom taught David how to revere the presence of God. I want you to understand the stark contrast between the first time that David tries to bring the ark home and the second time. The first time, he uses a cart. Basically, instead of asking his own people, how are we supposed to do this? He just looked at what the world did. See, and all the Philistines did was they put it into a cart and sent it back. So David, in his ignorance, was also like, well, we still got that cart around? Let's just use that. It worked for the Philistines. But this same guy, when he grew so jealous for the presence of God, when he heard from afar, I mean, you can, we, we didn't exactly have Twitter back then. There wasn't any social media or email in which David was able to hear like in real time of the blessing that Obed-Edom was receiving. Listen, the blessing that Obed-Edom was receiving was so great because of how he treated the presence of God that David in Jerusalem heard about it. It was so great that word of mouth could not stop it no matter how far away from David it was. And the same David who sent the presence of God back to the enemy was like, I got to figure out how to get that blessing here. I want you to understand how powerful this is. David was the king of Israel. Obed-Edom was a random guy. And the blessing that he received from the Lord was so great that David had to take it from him. He had to overcome his fear so he could receive the blessing. Because the truth is, friend, is that you and I, without the presence of God, we have nothing. We have nothing. Man, I don't just praise Jesus because he forgave my sin. It's because without his glory, without his presence, I have nothing. That's what David ultimately understood. Wives, gold, honor, land, crowns, nothing. I have nothing. And Obed-Edom has everything. And so I'm going to go take it from him. Man, I'll be honest with you. If I was Obed-Edom and David shows up at my door like, hey, can I get the ark back? Like, dude, kick rocks, man. You, you left it here. You gave it to me. Just take it back. See, the story of Obed-Edom reminds us that when the glory shows up, there's nothing else that matters. Your plans don't matter. Your position doesn't matter. Your reputation doesn't matter. Your accomplishments don't matter. All that matters is giving the glory of God, the presence of God, your full attention. Here's what I love about Obed-Edom. In three months, being in the presence of God, ministering to the spirit of the Lord, the man who had been a Gittite rediscovered the joy of being a Levite. Whatever his reasons had been for, you know, for leaving Israel and, and going and dwelling in the tents of the wicked, First Chronicles 26 records that he ended up becoming a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. 
Understand that the Bible doesn't say that Obed moved, but clearly he did. Those three months spent ministering to the presence changed the whole trajectory of his life. He couldn't be parted from the joy that he had found in the presence of God. It was so important that when the ark left, so did Obed. When the ark left, he's like, there's no joy here. There's nothing left here. Land, inheritance, nothing. It doesn't matter. Because what I have found, what I have found, what has found me, rather, what has found me, what has gripped me, the things that I would have left, the things that I had left, don't seem to matter as much anymore. See, more than anything, what Scripture communicated about Obed is that a man or a people who revere the presence of God will reap the reward of their posture towards him. 1 Chronicles, we see that musicians and gatekeepers are partners in ministering to the presence. What's really interesting, you know, I, I didn't know this until I got into this particular um, study moment. Most of us understand that not all the Psalms are written by David, yeah? Like a lot of them are written by David, some are written by Solomon, there's a couple that are actually written by Moses. There's actually a large portion of them that are written by David's musicians, the guys that he paid 24-7 to be ministering to the presence of God in the temple. Psalm 84, which is really, really familiar, was written by the, by, um, excuse me, by the sons of Korah, which is the same group of men that 1 Chronicles 26 tells us that Obed-Edom is found among. Listen to this. You've all probably heard this verse, but I, I can't... I can't help but see this verse differently in light of what I know about Obed. He may not have written this verse, or maybe he just lived it, but this is what it says. It says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Listen to this. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. You ever wondered how they come up with analogies like that? Like sometimes we just like we just think that like oh yeah it's like that rhymed right like you ever wonder like sometimes like there's like a weird lyric in a song you're like why did they use that lyric probably because it rhymed right or maybe or maybe this psalm was written by somebody who actually knew what it what it felt like to dwell among the tents of the wicked maybe it was written by somebody who was able to see the difference in their life. When the presence was there versus when the presence was not. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. This is a weird word I'm going to use, but you realize that like being a doorkeeper wasn't a sexy thing, right? They're standing by a door. That's literally what doorkeeper means. You open the door, you close the door. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God because that's where he lives. I would rather be doing, I need you to understand this, out of all of the servants of the temple, the doorkeepers were the lowliest 
What he was saying was, as long as I'm with God, as long as I'm near his glory, as long as I'm in proximity to his presence, I would rather be a doorkeeper than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Can I have the worship team come up? I'm going to go back to Luke 2, verse 7, as we're closing up. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Can I tell you, like, the one sad part about the birth of Jesus it's that. Sometimes we think of an inn, right? And I've even like, back when flannel graphs were a thing, and I was in kids' church, and they would explain to us the nativity, right? There would be an actual building. There's like an inn. And there's like a stern innkeeper with like his hand pointing this way because there's no room here, no vacancy. Like he's just a big jerk, right? That's like, I've always always grown up knowing the innkeeper was a jerk, okay? And like, the problem is, I just didn't understand the context of what an inn meant. It wasn't one building with like, you know, 10, you know, 10 places, you know, that you could be. It wasn't, you know, like the, you know, the little like motel that we have here in Newport. It was a custom in that era that many, many homes would have an upper room. That was just vacant. The idea was is that if family ever came into town, you had a place to put them. Or if there was ever an event in town where other people were coming in from another place, you could make extra money and you could rent it out. What this passage is actually implying is not that Mary and Joseph went to one place and there was no more room. What it implies is that they probably went to a dozen or more different houses and asked, do you have room? Do you have room? Sometimes because we read scripture so often, it can become really dry to us. And especially since these particular ones, we read them a few times a year at least. But can I maybe have you for a moment just imagine that you were there. Imagine that the living, breathing Ark of the Covenant showed up on your doorstep and you had the audacity to say, sorry, there's no room here. Sorry, we don't have the space for you. The sad part of the story is that nobody later got to say, I let the king of kings in, and he changed everything. I let the ark in, and it changed everything. See, I can look back to Obed-Edom and say, that is a person that absolutely had a story to tell. And his story is, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be doing the lowliest thing that I could in the house of my God than me making a million dollars somewhere else. I would rather be here. I would rather be with him because I have found the purpose of all life. And it's the glory of God.
You know what's crazy, Jeff? The religious leaders of the day knew he was there. They knew it. See, when, when the Magi came through, Matthew records this. Herod was just trying to figure out where the baby was so he could kill him, right? So he calls in the religious leaders, the clerics and the scholars, and he says, where's the Messiah to be born? And their response was, in Bethlehem of Judea, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You know what they didn't do? They didn't go. They didn't go. They had probably too many important things to do. They knew he was there. The one that they'd been waiting for for centuries and they didn't go. Because, oh man, I gotta read the Torah later in front of a bunch of people. This is a big deal, guys. So I ask you today, is there room at the inn? Or have we so filled the place prepared for the king with other idols and loves and responsibilities that like Abinadab, we treat him as a burden rather than our life's pursuit? Is there room at the inn? Is there room in your heart? Is there room for the king in your space? Or is that space full? Have we rented it out? Have we sold ourselves to other things? Man, I imagine for every person that turned away Jesus because they were renting the space out to somebody else who was coming in for the census, that this was actually kind of a bonus for them. But can I tell you, it was actually a trap. It was a trap. How many of you realize that the enemy does not want God to impact your life? Sometimes what we think are blessings are actually curses in disguise. Because anything that takes you from Jesus or takes Jesus from you is not a blessing, even if it feels like it. It is a curse. It may have felt like to a bunch of people, hey, having a little bit of extra income, that's great. But you missed out on the greatest miracle that has ever happened other than the resurrection. I feel like I would want to give up a day's wages maybe to see Jesus born. Maybe to be there when the glory of God entered the room bodily. So I ask you today, is there a room at the inn? How will you answer when the glory comes knocking at your door? Will you recognize the day of your visitation? I think it's in Matthew 21, Jesus actually, he's speaking to the scribes and the scholars and he says, you've missed your day of visitation. Imagine waiting as long as they did for a savior and then he shows up and they missed it. Is there room at the inn? I'm going to ask you just one question today. Is there room at the inn? Is there a place in your life 
to pursue the glory of God? Is there a space in your life to pursue the glory? And if there's not, why? Why? What do you have that's better than the glory? Man, I tell you, there are a few moments in my life where I've been in services, where I've been in, in prayer moments, and it's more than just, you know, the presence of God. It's like the glory shows up. And I can tell you that in those moments, God has marked my life for eternity. And I would never give up a moment in the glory for anything anywhere else. And I want to tell somebody this morning that if you will set yourself to see the glory of God, he will become manifest in this place. If you set yourself to pursue the things of God, he will pursue you in return. The eyes of the Lord are looking to and fro all throughout the earth for those who are loyal to him. Is there room at the end this morning? Come on, why don't you stand at your feet with me? Is there room today?
sing one more time. Just the voice. Let's give up a praise, church. Is there room at the end this morning? If you're here today, maybe you've never given your life to Jesus, or maybe you have at some point and you just found yourself in a far-off place, I want to ask you today, is there room at the end? telling you, every person in this room is going to have an encounter with the risen Jesus. A lot of the people in this room, probably most of them, already opened that door. We said there's room here. And I can absolutely hands down tell you that every person who has said there's room here has found their life profoundly altered because of who they let in the room. Listen. Peter thought he was going to be a fisherman. Paul was just going to be a Pharisee the rest of his life. James and John, fishermen. Matthew was going to be a tax collector. In fact, his name wasn't even Matthew, it was Levi. He was a tax collector. And the moment that they said, there's room at the end, God changed the direction of their life. Man, if that's you today, and you need to open the door. Is there room at the end this morning? If that's you, nobody's looking around, but I want you to raise your hand because I want to pray with you today. Is there room at the end today? If today's the day to say yes to Jesus, if today's the day to say, yeah, I need to, uh, I need to get some of these things out of this other room so I can let this person in. If, if, if you're here today and that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Anybody in the house today? God, we thank you. We thank you that you became flesh and you dwelled among us and that we have beheld your glory. I thank you that you are altering lives as we speak. And this is the last question I'm going to ask you today. Maybe you're a person who said yes to Jesus, but you realize you haven't really pursued Jesus with everything you had. And, to, and this season, 
This season, I'm telling you, is a season of marking. That if you will tell God, I will do what you want me to do, whatever it takes, I will pursue your presence. I will go after your glory. If, that, if the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning, and if that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray all over this room. But there will be a deep hunger and desire for the presence of God in every aspect of your life. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for those that are saying there's actually more room at the end. God, can you create more space? Can you create more space to see, to see the glory well up in my life? Jesus, I pray for a deep hunger in every person here this morning. I pray for a hunger to see you manifested. I pray for a hunger to, to, to go after you with everything that we have. That like Peter, we would say, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Where else could we run to? God, I thank you this morning for what you're doing in this house. I thank you for what you're doing in every person. And Jesus, more than anything, we are so grateful that you came, that you showed the glory of the Father, and that you did what only you could do. We thank you, God. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Can we give the Lord one more hand of praise today? We're going to have our prayer teams come up at this time. If you need prayer, I would encourage you not to leave this house without, uh, without receiving. Uh, we, we also, if you're new here, we would love to connect with you. Uh, we have a gift for you out of the information table. That said, I'm going to pray a quick blessing over you. God, I thank you for this wonderful people. I pray you'd bless them. You'd keep them. We'll cause your face to shine upon them. Lord, lift your countenance towards them and give them peace. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Have an amazing week.